Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. In the 9th century BC, uh, God chastened a wayward nation with a drought. Israel had given itself with aberrant love uh, to a multiplicity of idols, but among them were Baal and Asherah, provisional gods of fertility and rain, and yet it didn't rain in, in their country for three years, and, and that's a death sentence for an agricultural society. You know, that means crops die, forests wither, people starve. It's apocalyptic in that way. Well, I don't think we can relate to that, you know, not presently, not in our current American moment, because I know inflation, I know inflation's bad, gas costs too much, but most people in this, in this room are not, you know, touch and go, you know, we're not completely destroyed financially most of the time, like you could afford a pair of shoes if you needed one. You, you don't worry about fresh orange juice or if you're gonna have water at least most of us never think that way, but, but they did. But that, that doesn't mean we're out of touch with the notion of scarcity, though, because life within a fallen world always means that certain resources in your life are scarce. Put another way, you actually don't have all you need. You don't have all you need in life. Right now, ever, you don't. Because some things are absenting themselves from your experience, and you're bereft because of it. Uh, you know, some of you really don't have enough money to pay the rent this month. You have water, but not rent money. Some of you don't have enough education to actually get the job that would make you happy. Uh, some, of, some of you married into a messy family. You didn't know it at the time, but you married into a messy family, and they're really, really complicated, and they make your life kind of miserable, and you have a, the scarcity of stability, which would be really nice. Some of you have the scarcity regarding mental rest or physical rest because you're always on, constantly always on, and you feel like you can't catch a break, and you're barely just keeping your breath. Some of you are experiencing the scarcity of silence. I know this so well. I have three daughters, and I love them all infinitely. I mean, they're just astounding creatures, and they're wonderful, and they get more wonderful every day, but it's so loud, you know? Um, all I want is, I feel like the Grinch from the Grinch Who Stole Christmas, the noise, 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 um, and all I want is the sound of silence, a little Paul, you know, a Simon and Garfunkel from time to time. Um, but we all have experienced scarcity of one sort or another, where we don't have everything we need that would cause us to flourish. Well, the Bible says that in a fallen world, uh, scarcity is riddled throughout creation, and yet, and yet, there are breakthroughs. Sometimes lightning strikes. Sometimes uh, the miracle, the genuine article actually occurs. Sometimes, though Edens have become deserts, deserts can also become Edens. And that's what I wanna talk about today in terms of this, this great end of scarcity. But I wanna talk about it in terms of persistent prayer and an unlikely storm. Persistent prayer and an unlikely storm. 
I'd invite you to take, open, your, open your bulletin up and uh, let's um, consider this passage together. This reading will begin in verse 41. Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of the rushing of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees, and he said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, there is nothing. And he said, go again seven times. I think the location here is really important. It's Mount Carmel. You know, just a few minutes prior, they had a very lively public contest between uh, Elijah and the priests of Baal, or really between Yahweh and the false gods of the nations. They had this public contest, and both uh, sets of fancy people were supposed to call down fire, like pray that their divinity would send down fire upon the sacrifice. And the priests of Baal had a little parade and they were really into it and they started chanting and it was very eager and passionate, but that didn't work so they started stabbing themselves. They thought blood offering would help, but it didn't. And then Elijah makes a simple prayer and all of a sudden the altar is consumed with fire and that was the end of the contest. And as a result, the priests of Baal were put to death. And so the ground is still littered with blood. Uh, And Ahab is told by Elijah, who has a new sense of authority, right? Because he just won the contest. So he's now telling the king what to do. He says to the king, go up and eat and drink. Meaning, go resume your life. That is the life you had where you ate and drank with ease before this famine started. The austerity is over. He's about to make a great prediction, namely that the rain is coming. Before he smells it in the air, hears the wind, senses the drops on his body, he says, there is the sound of the rushing of rain. He's so sure. He's so sure. And so he tells the king to do that, and the king does it. He eats, but Elijah doesn't eat. Instead, Elijah prays. He prays, and I want you to notice his posture as he prays. Did you see how graphic the scriptures were? I mean, it's really specific. And he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. So he's staring at the sand. That's not where the rain is coming from. If I were Elijah, I would say a little pious prayer and then be staring to see if anything was actually going to happen up at the sky, you know, where the rain comes from. But instead, Elijah's looking in the opposite direction, on the ground, completely focused, in the most humble position, focused before God. Um, But because he's so focused on on praying, and and his head is tilted down, he needs somebody to do the, you know, the work of looking. So he has this uh, servant, we don't know, let's call him Frank. He has a servant named Frank, um, and he says, Frank, Like, go and look toward the sea. So he sends Frank to look toward the sea. Because evidently, he's up on the mountain, but he's not at the highest point of the mountain. And Dr. Shepson was saying, because he's actually been there, that they have a cave there that's known as Elijah's Cave traditionally, and that very well may be where his ministry or his respite took place. And uh, anyway, but you can go a little higher on the mountain. So he sends the servant up higher on the mountain. The servant looks toward the sea, which you can... Um, you can get a glimpse of from the top of the mountain. And the servant does this time after time after time, 
and sees nothing, and sees nothing. Um, and more than that, um, even when he begins to see something, Elijah never sees it. He doesn't see the small cloud. But Elijah is so certain that, that the rain is going to come that he keeps sending the servant again and again and again. Elijah persists, in other words. Even when there's no evidence that anything good is going to come, even when the drought is still uh, uh, soaking up any moisture that's left from the ground, even when everything is parched, he still is insistent that the rain is going to come, so he keeps sending the servant back. Now, my question, and I know I can, there's no perfect answer to this, but why did God not just answer his prayer right away? Why the seven times? I mean, twice is enough, really. Like, I can't handle any more than me. I mean, you ever had to have a difficult conversation with somebody two times, and you're like, well, if I told them once, I told them a million times. I'm like, no, you've told them twice. But still, it's exhausting, and you don't want to keep having to do it. But seven times to check. Um, why is God doing this? He doesn't have to do it this way. Don't you remember how Elijah prays for the fire to consume the sacrifice that's on the altar? Elijah doesn't pray seven times. He asks God once, and all of a sudden the fire is right there, consumes the whole offering right away. So why this, this other way of doing the miracle? I don't know. I assume that part of it is that he's teaching people about dependency. It's dependency in a way because... Elijah has to rely upon the promise of God, and he's going to pray until he sees the promise fulfilled. And I think dependency is really hard for us. I don't think we're good at it. I think the sinful condition speaks a lie into your ear that says this, you are alone. It's all on you. You have to fix this yourself. Everything depends upon you. You can't rely upon anybody else, and certainly not God, because he wouldn't have you anyway. So it's all about you. I did it my way, sings not St. Frank Sinatra. Um, and that's the, I think that's the, that's the drive, that's the energy of fallenness, complete um, independence. And what God is teaching Elijah here and us through Elijah is really the wisdom comes when you're reduced in your ego to become dependent. It's not the only time this has happened in Scripture. In Elijah's successor's ministry, that is Elisha, in his ministry, he runs into this pagan warlord named Naaman, and Naaman has leprosy, this nasty skin condition, and he, he tells Naaman, you can be healed. I got a word from God. You can be healed, um, and Naaman's all about that. Yay, I like to be healed, and he said, you just have to go dunk yourself in the Jordan River seven times. Why didn't God just give him the healing? Instead, he makes Naaman again and again and again go to the Jordan River because he's teaching Naaman something about his ego. And he's teaching Naaman something about dependence. Uh, and he has to depend upon the power of somebody other than himself. Um, but there's something about persistence that is highlighted in Scripture as a, as a wonderful thing, even to be persistent with God. Jesus talked about this, by the way, in his parables. He tells this parable about a widow that was treated unjustly by life, and she goes to this judge who is an unjust jerk, and she keeps pestering him, pounding at his door, saying, can you please fix this for me? 
I don't have the power to do it, but you do, so fix it, please. Well, eventually in the parable, the judge relents and says, yeah, whatever. If it gets you to shut up, I'll do whatever you want. And, and that's what happens, right? The judge gives her justice because he's tired of her pestering. That parable has two lessons. The first is God is not like an unjust judge who doesn't want to hear people. He actually does care and is invested. Secondly, it's good to be persistent in prayer. It's good to be persistent, not because God is deaf, but because we are because we can't hear, we can't speak, because we're so wrapped up in ourselves that persistence kind of shows our dependence. Um, And that's why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, it's translated ask and seek and knock when we need something from God, but the Greek is ask and keep asking, seek and keep seeking, knock and keep knocking, keep at it. I think persistence is a is a wonderful virtue. And I have many people who tell me, Ethan, you know, I know I should be persistent in prayer and I should be persistent in certain disciplines, but I find that persistence is impossible with human beings. Nobody's really persistent. Friends, that's untrue. We are constantly persistent in many, many, many aspects of our life. If you have a heart issue, you will persistently take your heart medication or you will die right? If you, not to put too fine a point on it, um, you, some of you work out persistently. And if anybody, you know, interrupts that course, you'll flip out. Some of you check your phones, all of us, check our phones persistently. Uh, some of you watch CNN persistently. Some of you are waiting for an incoming email from a threatening source uh, persistently. Some of you check your stocks or your retirement accounts persistently. We are often quite persistent, and I think here is a, an axiom that is almost unqualifiably true. Um, persistence shows our trust, or persistence shows what we trust in. Where we are most persistent is where we are most reliant. Or to quote Ashley Null, the great uh, scholar of Thomas Cranmer who wrote the Book of Common Prayer, Ashley Null puts it this way, what the heart wants, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. Meaning, what you love is what you will do, because the will is captured by the affect. What the heart wants, the will chooses, the mind justifies. Uh, I find, friends, that we don't often persist in the central things because we are terrified to do so. We are afraid to be persistent in prayer for a variety of reasons. We're afraid to persist in prayer because to persist in prayer shows us again and again our utter dependence and inability to solve our own problems, and very few of us want to face that with great depth. Also, persistence in prayer is scary because we we don't want to be thought of as a fool because we have prayed about something before, maybe a few times, and nothing changed. And we were filled with disappointment and we don't want to be further disappointed, or we have disappointment that has fermented over the years into bitterness, and we have just stopped talking to God about certain things because we've given up. And so that's my question to all of us regarding persistence in prayer, making conscious contact with God about a particular need in our life. Here's my question. Where have you just given up? Where are you just done? Where have you become cynical or scared into silence? Where have you stopped talking to God? Is it your son that's acting out terribly? Parents that have become increasingly volatile as they've aged? 
your own multiple sclerosis? Is it your childlessness that you're tired of facing? Is it some sort of psychological problem that just doesn't seem to be getting better? Or some pestering sin issue that just won't go away? But very often we've given up um, and we just shut down on the inside and we, we stop looking to heaven because we don't really think heaven has anything for us anymore. God can do this, God can do that, God used to do those things, but this is not for me, I'll never have this. And so we just shut up. Um, but Elijah was persistent. Where did his persistence come from, though? Was it just willpower? Did he just will it? I'm just going to overcome, and I'm going to show that I'm a man's man, and I'm going to handle it. No, that's ridiculous. Because in the very next chapter, he is so discouraged that he wants to lay down and die. Chad will speak about that next Sunday. Uh, but he's not a man full of willpower. And, and we don't really um, gain a lot from willpower, right? Because willpower is sort of a joke. I mean, it changes like every three minutes. Like you may feel really strong right now, but you get a virus later tonight, you won't feel so strong. Um, you won't be able to overcome it. Um, instead, his, his persistence doesn't derive from his own strength. It comes from God's promise because at the beginning of chapter 18, that is way before our lesson tonight, the beginning of chapter 18, God comes to, a, uh, come, comes to Elijah and says, go and present yourself to Ahab and I will send rain on the land. In other words, his persistence comes from revelation. God gave him a revelation. God gave him some truth, and he found that his strength rose up from that truth. And if you want to be strong in life, you actually cannot trust your own strength. You have to, as a dependent person, rely upon the strength and credibility of someone else. You need a revelation of who you are. You need a revelation of who God is, and then you'll have a little bit more pluck and zeal to get through what you need to get through. But you need a transcendent cure. You actually cannot have a cure within yourself. Right now, in our current cultural moment, the notion is that salvation is within. Salvation is within yourself, and it's all about self-discovery, often through romantic means, but self-discovery. What I'm here to tell you, and what Scripture is here to tell you, is you actually don't have what it takes, and neither do I, and no one ever does, and that's fine, because God has provided it all in Christ. Everything has been dealt with in Christ forever and permanently. That is your legitimacy, and that is the place of your enduring strength. You ground yourself on that, and you'll be all right. Well, that's where his persistence came from, because he got a word from the Lord that water was coming, that the rain would come. So that's something about persistent prayer. And now, point two, something about an unlikely storm. An unlikely storm. Now, this is verse 44. And at the seventh time, he said, behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. That's what the servant said. And he said, go up to Ahab, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down lest the rain stop you. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. Now, after days of intense prayer, the only hope Elijah has is a report. A report. He didn't even see it, that there was a cloud the size of a man's hand. By the way, that is not what Elijah is praying for. It's disappointing. It almost feels like a cruel joke. Yes, I'm going to fly this tiny little cloud over your heads that won't even give you shade, let alone rain. 
And note Elijah's glorious response. He sees in the cloud the size of a man's hand the sovereign, miraculous, supernatural work of God that will heal the whole country. That's our answer. He doesn't even have to see it. He just hears it. And he says, we're all done. We're all done. It's all going to work out. Everybody's going to be all right. The land will be totally healed. He didn't need to hear the thunder or feel the rain. The cloud, the size of a man's hand, was the beginning of the storm. He knew that the reprieve had begun By the way, this is God's frequently used pattern in Holy Scripture. The subtle sign becomes the massive cure. The subtle sign that we often ignore or ridicule becomes the massive cure. God is often not in the beginning in the business of shock and awe. Instead, Jesus teaches the kingdom of God comes to you like a mustard seed that no one can even see. It's the tiniest of all seeds, and yet... It becomes the largest of all the garden plants. The kingdom of God is like leaven, tiny dust that's put into dough that changes the whole nature of the dough. The kingdom of heaven is like a small child put in the arms of Christ, a child without a job, doesn't pay taxes, doesn't vote, doesn't do a, you know, the child that doesn't seem that impressive. Jesus says that this is how the kingdom of God is revealed through the small, through the subtle, through the things that the community and the individual would dismiss out of hand. By the way, that is totally how your life has changed. How has your life changed? Where were the pivoting places in your life? Was it shock and awe? No, uh, that's very unlikely. Instead, it was something you read. It was a book you read, a poem you considered, a friend who said one thing to you when they weren't even paying attention. It was that thing, somebody that showed you a little grace because they ate, and, ate well that day and slept well the previous night and showed you a little grace. That was the thing that pivoted your whole life. That was the thing that encapsulated and instantiated the grace of God for you in that moment. And that's often how the kingdom of God invades and how it works. Um, so two stories about this to flesh it out. I, I once in another parish was dealing with a couple that had a very troubled marriage. Now, it was troubled in a very particular way. It was a loudly troubled marriage. They were not men and women of subtlety. Uh, they were screamers, and they would love to scream obscenities at the top of their lungs where the neighbors had to call the cops. Now, some of you uh, uh, don't do that and said you're far more mature and said you just slap each other with silence and go and sulk in another room until the other person apologizes, right? Because that's healthy. Just kidding. Anyway, so, um, so they, were, they were more cussers, and they, were, they would fight very, very viscerally. And I remember going to visit them at one point and knocking on the door and hearing all the uh, the loudness within, and I just thought that I could fix it because that's really healthy too. And so I went and knocked on the door, and um, the wife came to the door and like peered one eyeball out the door and half her mouth and said, "Ethan, now is not a very good time." <laughs> I thought you're telling me, so I ran away. Um, uh, but I, I found out that the very next Sunday they were seen in church holding hands, and that may not sound like a big deal to you, but that had never happened with them. And anyway, the affection kind of built and continued and lingered, and they were kind of joking with each other in public and more sweet. And at one point, I had the courage to ask, what helped you? And they said, your visit. Just kidding, that did not happen. (laughs) What helped you? Uh, And they said, well, after you came to the door, we just lost it. And um, she said to me, do you know how many years I prayed for your death? 
at least three. And he said, that's it? I've been praying for your death a lot longer than that. And they said, well, that's a terrible thing to say. Well, I mean, what do you think is behind that? And they said to each other, well, I just, I wanted you to get, I wanted to be free from you. And I even, I, you know, I, I thought about, I thought about murder. And the other person said, really? Like, I thought about that too. How would you murder me? Well, how would you murder me? And they had this big conversation. And, all, and they all of a sudden, for the first time in maybe 20 years, just started to laugh. They absolutely lost it when they were considering homicide. They're like, what has gone wrong with our marriage? You know, they absolutely lost it. And for whatever reason, they were able to express their negativity toward the other, but also the negativity they were feeling about themselves. They finally, because of the humor, let go of some of the rage, and for whatever weird reason, that odd situation was the cloud the size of the man's hand that led to the storm that healed their whole marriage. And now they're vestry members at a church near Philadelphia, and they're doing well, and the kids, and this is the tell, the kids who were in college long to come home because home is a safe and good place, because you have mom and dad who used to want to kill each other, and now they're each other's biggest fan. That is not a preacher story. That is a real story that things like that happen. Things like that still happen. And it also happened in the early church. Story two, St. Augustine. You may know the name. He, uh, he was born, but without the saint attached to his name. He was born simply Augustine of Hippo, northern Africa. Uh, he was... Um, a member of the fourth century intelligentsia, uh, but like many intellectually driven people, he was deeply emotionally wounded uh, on the inside and often used to escape in the life of rhetoric and books, but his pain was caused because he had a jerk for a father who was an abandoner and also a, a kind of a cruel tyrant when he was present, and he would latch on to women because he was always hurting inside, so he became sort of this playboy. And, uh, and so then that didn't work, so he joined a cult, and well, that didn't help him either. Eventually, uh, due to odd happenstance, he got converted. He heard people um, chanting, uh, th there were children playing next door, um, bantering about that they, the, the other kids should read something, and Augustine had the New Testament right in front of him along with other books, so he picked it up and he read it, and he got converted. And when he was considering how he got converted in his book called The Confessions, he says something really beautiful about his mom because his mother was a Christian. Her name was Monica, and she had a hard life. I, I did this whole paper once on the tears of Monica because uh, Monica would cry a lot, and she would pray, and she would ask God to take care of her son. And she didn't see evidence of that for a long, long time. It just seemed like from bad to worse with this kid. But then Augustine hears this silly game from next door, takes up the New Testament, reads, and is converted and changes the world. When Augustine looks back and says, what made the difference? He said, my mom prayed for me. Because he writes a lot about predestination. And Augustine almost says, you know, I think I was predestined to be damned. He almost comes close to saying that. But God didn't want to see my mother hurt anymore. And he didn't want to see my mother cry. And he heard the prayers of my mom and everything changed because of that. And the doors opened up for me in new, wonderful ways. And that made all the difference. So, to land this for us. Ultimately, what is our cloud, the size of a man's hand, the very, very small thing that enters life that cures everything? What is it? Um, is it a mini miracle that we experience? And I think those happen all the time, by the way. I think God is hyper-invested in all of our lives. 
Is it a healing from a disease? Is it mental equilibrium? Is it an income that rises? Is it a sin pattern that's broken? Sometimes that can be a bit of a cloud the size of a man's hand that brings a, a broad scale rejuvenation to us sometimes. But miracles within this life, they don't last forever and they don't solve all the problems. And sometimes, by the way, we persist in prayer, but for mysterious reasons, God says no to the very thing we ask for. St. Paul realized this uh, late in his ministry because he asked God, he's tormented by the, what he calls the thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it is. I think that's better that we don't because then it metaphorizes it and we can, all, we can all relate to it. He said, I prayed three times that God would take this away and he didn't. Instead, he said, my grace is sufficient for you and my power is made perfect in weakness. So just because something isn't taken away doesn't mean you're not persisting and it doesn't mean God is sort of negativity or negatively disposed toward you. Sometimes it just doesn't work. But here is one cloud the size of a man's hand that always works. And it is true for you in 100% of cases. And that is that the cloud the size of a man's hand, the little cloud, is ultimately Jesus. It's ultimately Jesus. He is our little cloud because he looked small and unassuming and vulnerable and even foolish in the eyes of a lot of people, most people really. Uh, he was the peasant carpenter from some lower middle class bit of squalor in the Middle East. You know, people ask themselves, can anything good come from his hometown? He's not impressive. Isaiah, the prophet, looked forward to the coming of Christ and wrote these words. He had no form or majesty that we should esteem him and no beauty that we should desire him. And then later, but the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And sometimes that's all it takes. Or, to quote Jesus, sometimes a single seed falls to the ground and dies and creates a worldwide harvest because of that death. It's the foolishness of the cross and the small, unassuming Jewish Messiah. That little cloud, stabbed through, ends up soaking the world in redeeming love. And then the fall, capital F, becomes spring. We have a superior revelation than even Elijah received. For us, it's not the rain, but the blood. And the blood recreates you and the whole world with you. So, friends, a little persistence, please. It's hard for all of us. This world tears us to pieces. And we all have unmet needs and hurts. But a little persistence, comrades, because things will not always be so scarce. So don't give up, or to quote St. Paul, always pray and never give up. Remember Wilson Phillips from the 1980s, that hallowed band? Hold on for one more day, right? Because our deserts will become Eden as surely as Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Just wait a little longer, because God refuses to give up on you. Amen. Free at last, they took your life, they could not.